welcome to Pop Culture Addicts. Some of you may remember today's guest from his role as the possibly divine being, Jacob, on Lost. Or maybe as Lucifer himself in Supernatural. Or maybe you just recognize his voice as Jacob Seed from the video game Far Cry 5. But he's with us today to talk about some of his more recent work, some upcoming roles, and maybe just a little bit of some fan, fan favorites. Let's welcome to the show, Mark Pellegrino. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Really glad to have you here with us today. Great to be here. Thanks. All right. So let's start off by talking about American Rust. Now, from what we understand and what we've seen and our what we like to call um, stalking, um, this isn't research. the first time. Research. I'm sorry. Yes, it's research. <laughs> we put uh, the pretty bow of research on it, so it's not stalking. It's not stalking. That's right. <laughs> so this isn't your first time working with Dan Futterman. Um but did that earlier work help you lead to being cast as Virgil Poe? And then also, how would you describe uh, Virgil as a man and a parent? Uh, firstly, if it did lead to me being cast as Virgil Poe, I'd say there's some serious issues between me and Dan Futterman. Um, <laughs> as, as you can see from watching Virgil. <laughs> um, maybe it did. I hope it did. Um, I like when you work with people and, and sometime in the future they call you up to work again because they actually enjoyed working with you. I know I enjoyed working with him. Um, not just on Capote, where he was the writer, you know, Academy Award nominated writer for that great, great, great movie that I was so fortunate to be a part of. But I knew him back in the days when he was acting. You know, we did a thing called The Class of 61, a Steven Spielberg pilot that never that never um, saw the light of day um, about the West Point class of 1861. So it was a Civil War piece, uh, very, very uh, interesting uh, piece that, that could that launched a lot of careers, even though it didn't, uh, didn't uh, go very far uh, itself. Um, but Virgil, Virgil Poe is, I would describe him as a man-child. <laughs> he's just a guy who, he, he, he's a guy in search of a party. He just wants to be free. And, uh, you know, the, the shackles and binds of adulthood are really not for him. Um, uh, and you, you, you there's, a, there's, there's something about that to respect. If, what, what, what about that can we respect? His honesty. <laughs> um He's, he's honest about it. He is what he is. Um, he doesn't make any bones about being something else. Um, and hopefully it, it will be, at some point, fun to watch him. It's uh, probably hell to live with him, but fun to watch from the outside. And I think, you know, I think my stepdad was that guy. My stepdad was not fun to be with, but he was, he had lots of friends who thought he was a very different person. Different perception outside looking in. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. So All right. in addition to American Rust, you also have a project coming up called Strangers in a Strange Land, which is directed by your wife, Tracy. Yeah. And you also, she has some credits, you have acting credits. So what is the general premise of that film series and when do we get to watch it? That's a very good question. The premise, the premise is, uh, you know, miscommunication. It's what happens when people from different cultures collide and think they're communicating one thing, but they're actually communicating something else, and and things go south. And the the story, we we came up with the story sort of on the fly because I do conventions all over the world, and she said, "Hey, why don't we use?" We get free travel to these places. Why don't we use that opportunity to film in the various places that we are? So we 
we wrote as some of us commissioned, we sometimes commissioned friends to write short scripts for the places that we were at. So the place becomes a character in the story as well. And then we just shot it on the floor. She mostly shot it while I was working on a convention and then I'd, you know, do catering and, you know, and sometimes acted in it as well. Um, and helped, you know, some stuff. Um, but this thing has been in the can now for a while, um, meaning it's been finished. Uh, it, it had lots of issues with post-production where post-production houses kept it for like a long time because they were working on it on the side as a favor to us. And so the thing was in post-production for about two years. And, um, and now uh, Tracy's been busy with other things, but now it's about getting it out to film festivals. So, I mean, we started filming the doggone thing, I think, in 2013. Oh, wow. my goodness. Yeah. Uh, so it's completed. There's 10 films called Strangers in a Strange Land. I think it's better than Je, Je T'aime Paris. Um, I, I think some of the films are actually like ridiculously good. And the actors in them are ridiculously good. And the fact that my wife was able to pull off this feat of creativity in different countries um, under crazy circumstances sometime in brazil they lost all of our equipment for three days oh wow oh, my goodness. and we we had we had a tight schedule to shoot this film in brazil for five days so she shot the entire piece in two wow, oh, wow. in rio de janeiro by herself on copacabana wow. okay that's crazy that is impressive. That, that's my wife. She's. I'm like, Tracy, there's favelas right down there. See you walking around the street with a camera, and there's a kid. You know, you're you, your, your target. This, right. is, this is Rio de Janeiro. It's one of the most dangerous and beautiful places on the planet. She had no fear. She has <laughs> no fear. Awesome. Wow. Kudos. Of course, of course, of course, a couple one day into it, my jujitsu teacher did come and visit us and I did post him with her on, on, uh, on one of the shoots. <laughs> there you go. So, of course, a lot of people know she's, she's defended. She, yes. Yes. He's a, he's a six degree black belt in Brazilian jujitsu. So he really knows his stuff, but um, uh, I, when is it going to come out? I don't know. Hopefully in this next year, I'd love people yeah. to see it. Because I'm getting old. By the time it comes out, you know, I'm going to be all more wrinkly. I'm going to look very different from the guy. Very different from the guy in the film. I am so going to use that line later. <laughs> I'm just. I'm not old. I'm just more wrinkly. <laughs> that's it. That's it. It's a thing. It's going to be a thing. I so, earn these wrinkles. I earn. That's right. Wow. Definitely. So, a question that popped up in my head while you were talking about that. So you you filmed in all these different places. You know, even if it was just for for short periods of time. Where was your favorite destination to to do these short films at? Like, just maybe you know, because some people go, "Oh man, you got to film in Rio, and because it's so beautiful," or you, you know. But sometimes for me, the 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 favorite things are the ones that aren't the expected. Is was that the case in one of these? Um, it's you know, it's difficult to say because you, for me, you get so busy in the moment working on what you're working on that you're not really taking the time to sort of drink in the atmosphere. Sure. And I'm, and I'm so busy. I was so busy in Rio working on the show and then or working on the, on the convention, which was, you know, nine, 10 hours at a pop at a pretty good pitch. It wasn't like normal conventions and then coming home to, to sort of help her film. So my days were like 14, 15 hour days. And I, we saw stuff, you know, cause we did, we did um, sh sh shots at places that were famous there, but 
Um, I don't feel like I got to take them in as I would have liked to. Um, but every place was so unique. I mean, I particularly like the stuff we did in Germany because we found some crazy places there. Um, like, for example, th there's a story that my character tells in there about, it's a fictional story about these two lovers that couldn't see eye to eye and they fought, and, and, but then one of them dies and you know confesses his love at the very end and she dies immediately after and they, there's a tree buried over them uh, that intertwines and becomes like two trees. I, I don't remember the exact story, but it was this beautiful, beautiful story that I made up. I just made up this story. And our location scout over there found a tree exactly like that in the middle oh. of the German forest. Cool. So it's like how that person actually did it, I don't know, but it, it made the story really, really um, beautiful. Um, and I liked that, that I, maybe because I wrote that particular story too <laughs> and seeing and seeing the, the actors sort of live out these speeches and me talk about love in, in an idyllic way. I don't know. I feel sort of drawn to that. And so that maybe that's my favorite place. That's all right. That's a fair answer. Okay. It's a really cool. cool story. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So in addition to being an actor, you're also uh, a teacher of acting as well. Now, we can't have great entertainment with actors and crew that makes shows and movies we love um, without having people who teach these things. So thank, thank you for helping keeping the arts going. It helps keep putting people out in front of us who are who are. You know, we always find there's always that new actor that, or that comes out or the new writer or somebody along those lines who helps put something new from a new perspective. And I think that's one of my favorite things about the arts is seeing seeing the new things that that people can come up with. But generally speaking, what is the best piece of advice that you give to aspiring actors, somebody who's who's looking to reach out and become the next Mark Pellegrino? Well, I'll tell you what, nobody in my class actually likes to hear the advice <laughs> because anytime they ask me, um, you know, it's usually coming from the point of view of, I want to be famous and what's the fastest, most sweat free, least conflicted way of doing it. In other words, they don't want any problem at all. Uh, yeah. Um, they just, they want the magic pill and there really is no magic pill. So what, what I tell them is, um, first of all, treat this like a craft, um, compare yourself to other craftsmen and craftswomen and ask yourself, am I doing the work that this person does the equivalent work that this person does to achieve to achieve a, a certain mastery of my craft. And I say, you know, are you working like the brain surgeon did in medical school? Are you working like the painter did when they went to art school and mm -hmm. studied with the masters? Right. Um, most actors will say no. Uh, most actors won't devote, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day to their craft when they're not working on their craft. Of course, you have to bring home, you have to bring home the bread and onions. You got to keep the lights on. I've, I've done four jobs simultaneously while rehearsing three, four times a day. And it, it, it's, it's tough. It's not, it's not easy. Um, and sometimes it doesn't end the way you'd like it to end. Um, does it ever? Cause we all die. So I guess that's the, we don't all want that. So <laughs> in the end, it, it, it never ends the way you want it to end. But um, you know, it, it's really hard work. And I say, if you want to be the rock star, you got to do what the rock star does. What does the rock star do? They, they marry their guitar and they sit with it for 12 hours a day. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Until their fingers bleed, as Brian Adams said in his uh, song. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say treat it like a craft. And then, um, you know, you have to have endurance because uh, this isn't a sprint. It's, it's a marathon for real. And you have to emulate the actors like the Charles Bronsons and uh, Kathy Bates. Sorry. sorry. You, you, okay. You got to emulate the Kathy Bates of the world, the Charles Bronsons of the world, not because Charles Bronson acted well, but because he was a 35-year over, overnight success. And Kathy Bates was doing great plays on Broadway before she became known to everybody when she did this breakout role 20 years or more into uh, her acting profession. So right. that's the people you have to emulate. The, the, you know, the Dustin Hoffman's, the Gene Hackman's who got careers l- late in life, but um, who, or even Chris Cooper, who I worked with on Capote, who, who would say, you know, whenever an actor asks me, what, what, do, what do I have to do to be an actor? He's like, you don't, you don't want, you don't want to ask me that because he would do regional theater and paint scenery and come on to the stage to do one line. Uh, an original theater and studied with Stella Adler and, you know, very unromantic stuff, uh, but he became great and he is great. Yeah. I think in the, the era in which we live, that there's a, a misconception that you can become famous overnight by doing virtually nothing. I think a lot of people forget that, you know, the, the star baseball players, you know, uh, when you think of, you know, home run hitters or people who have hit for average, I think a lot of like guys like Tony Gwynn, uh, who used to play for the San Diego Padres. He was a career, I think, 330 hitter, you know, uh, somewhere in there. I mean, you know, bat over 300 for a career is amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, the thing and, that, that, that kind of... And, that, and that's missing 70%. Exactly. And, <laughs> he, and he's still considered amazing for missing 70% yeah. of the time. Yeah. But the thing is, is that to have that 30% success rate, he just didn't walk out to the ballpark one day, pick up a baseball bat and say, I'm going to do this. It was years of hard work and dedication and, you know, and practice, 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 you know, all the things that you were just talking about. It's not just, you know, hey, I'm going to be an actor. Or, hey, I'm going to be a, you know, I'm going to be a baseball player or whatever it's going to be. There's There's got to be some work, you know, put in behind whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, you have to. You, I remember talking to Frank Darabont about talent and and what it takes to succeed and i think he's a fantastic writer and director and he said you know mark the the talent i have is that i have a talent for sitting my ass in the seat until it's done (laughs) that's that's my talent talent. that's a talent it is really a talent just it is try right try writing and see and i'm sure and i don't know if you guys write but i i try and just sitting there and Getting it done is ninety nine percent of the battle. I tried once. Um, I I found him more of a talker than a writer. So for me, this is the easier thing. Uh, my my brain tends to uh, hey look a squirrel, uh, and I and I uh, I get distracted pretty easily. And so for me, writing is is more difficult. Now if I, if it's more of an editorial style writing where I can just sit down and I can write my personal feelings and thoughts i have no problem with that but trying right. to to build any type of you know construct uh, around something world building character building anything like that yeah that's not going to happen you're going to get this is bob he likes shrimp uh, move on <laughs> you know <laughs> it's hard it's really hard but you know you, you'd, you'd find that if you talk to any of the great writers out there um they will probably say Hey, look, the squirrel too. And that's what they they have problems with that as well. 
it's amazing anything gets done in, in Hollywood because we're all we're all ADHD and easily distracted, but somehow it all comes together to somehow. make really beautiful things. Sometimes, you know. So talking about honing your craft and working on your craft, there are some actors who it seems that they mold their roles around their own personalities, but you don't like talking to you for the last twenty minutes. You are very different from Virgil on American Rust and Paul on Dexter and definitely different than Lucifer. Like, I mean, those are huge personality shifts for you. So what do you do to help prepare yourself for those roles, especially where that character's been around for centuries, if not longer, so that you can be convincing as being them? Well, luckily um, for something like the Lucifer, for example, he comes tailor-made with a whole mythology that almost everybody knows, and you don't have to do any work around that. People are just going to assume that in the narrative, right? Like Brando would talk about how little you have to actually do because people who are sitting in the seats watching you, they're already, they're already suspending disbelief in, their, in the moment. If the story is reasonably told, you know, there aren't any glaring holes. Um, people are just, they're going to, they're going to accept what you, what you do, mm-hmm. which is a, marvelously generous and relaxed way of working. But with, with something like Lucifer, the story wasn't to me about um, a celestial being. It was about a jilted son, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody who had been rejected by his family and was on the outside, um, always on the outside, unjustly on the outside who wanted revenge and wanted to get back in. Mm -hmm. I think almost anybody can relate to that. At least me, I'm a geek. Uh, I could relate to that. I feel like I've always been on the outside. Right. And so even though Lucifer, Lucifer's extreme narcissism, if we can sit back and judge it now, let's call it mm-hmm. what it is. Lucifer oh, yeah. said he was narcissistic. Um, <laughs> that may not be the way I would behave in real life, but I can animate, I can, I can motivate myself on the idea of getting revenge against somebody who's hurt me unjustly. Right. And, I, sure. and I, can, I can relate to the family dynamics of a brother who bullies you and, and who doesn't take your side and, and the father who abandons you. All of that stuff is totally human and relatable. And, um, and even for a guy like Paul, what do I focus on for Paul? I mean, I focus on the fact that he's a guy trying to reunite his family, trying to do the right thing. So I try to find the virtue in the character that I can get behind that, that makes me not judge the character at all. Um, Cause you can't, you can't judge the character and then play it because you play right. a character, you play a caricature, right? You play something artificial, right. but you're right. None of those characters are anything like me at, you know, other than me trying to find those, bits and pieces of justice and virtue that I can get behind. Yeah, I can totally see that. That actually makes a lot of sense. And the the Lucifer character is... I found him incredibly entertaining because you do get that, that different perspective on him. I mean, everybody knows his story. We're all taught his story growing up. But then you you see it from his point of view with the, wait a minute... Am I really siding with who I think I'm siding with right now? Like, that feels wrong. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I hate to tell you, you've been sold a bill of goods by by the culture. I mean, I do think Lucifer is a hero. I actually do. (laughs) I know that sounds nutty to people today, but I considered Lucifer to be the first rebel against arbitrary authority. 
Um, and I love that. I love when people stand up against arbitrary authority and, and tell it to take a hike or have a mind of their own, which is what Lucifer says in the fifth season when he's trying to convince Sam to be the vessel. He's like, what was I condemned for? Having my own mind. That's something that you can get if you're if you if you have a strong sense of individualism, a strong sense of human dignity, you can get behind that, you know, and that's right. something anybody can. What? I'm, I'm rejected just for me, for thinking, for wanting what I want, for wanting to say no. I should be able to say no. Anybody should be able to say no. Why can't you get but you can't you can't help but get behind that. Right. Yeah. So I, I think your feelings were just. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> Hear it from Lucifer himself. I'm okay. <laughs> there you go. So when when you look at characters like this, when you when you're playing these type of characters, do you take? Uh, I don't want to say a special joy, but uh, is it ex more exciting for you to be able to play a character that's that's outside of the realm of what you consider your own personality, because maybe of the challenge that is going to be involved and in, and in, and in locking down that one piece of of whatever it is that that's going to sell the character i mean i like there is a certain freedom to like in an anarchistic way a certain freedom to playing a character that does anything he wants to do and like lucifer is totally inconsiderate of any consequences because they they don't really affect him um there is something liberating in that um and I do enjoy it. My wife doesn't because about a week or so before I go shoot, I become the practical joker on her and I play practical jokes because I feel like Lucifer was sort of very similar to the trickster in, in uh, a lot of ways in the latter seasons, sort of a broad, excuse me, comedic guy and um, who loved messing with people. So I would mess with my wife <laughs> just sort of habitually, you know, and she's like, I hate it when you go over there because you mess with me. And um, he did kind uh, of become the comedic relief in the show. He did. He did. He was, and I wasn't sure if I liked that at first um, because season five, Lucifer is funny in a very simple and understated way, but he's also very scary. Mm -hmm. He's he's scary. There's something regal about him and untouchable, but but relatable and frightening and single minded. And the Lucifer um, of later seasons was more of an impish guy, the guy on your shoulder messing with you and mm -hmm. making your life tough because that's fun, you know. Right. And uh, and then I came around to thinking, well, what do I think about evil? I think evil is really, in fact, powerless. Mm -hmm. I think it's parasitic and it depends on virtue for its existence. So, hey, why not make the bad guy little, like spiritually small? Yeah. Make him a jokester. Make him that way. That's okay. I prefer to laugh at Lucifer than be scared of Lucifer. Okay. I mean, I Nick was Nick was scarier. I mean, when it came, once you got acclimated to the to the impish Lucifer, the real monster of Nick, the the man who pursuing Lucifer's pursuing revenge at first, and then Lucifer, the connection mm -hmm. with Lucifer, that that a lot of people said was really really scary, and I don't blame them for. And I I do find the the human characters to be the scarier ones because they're human, like. That's that's possible in another human to see that level of scary. Whereas, like, you take Lucifer and you're like, but he's 
he's not human so he's not as scary but yeah no nick was scary nick is scary and yeah nick didn't have lucifer's sense of humor and you know at the by the end lucifer was just sort of a sarcastic and witty and having fun with everybody um and nick didn't have that no he didn't have a funny bone in his body it's like when you watch zombie movies and you realize that the zombies are not the bad guys right that's what's great about those right it's mm-hmm. it's great it commentary really great commentary on society the monsters are the people oh my god what it's yes. true yeah so well you add a dash of narcissism and take away a sense of humor and uh feeling of self-importance and, and you know destroy any sort of social construct yeah absolutely get rid of civilization and suddenly we're all crazy now you have a monster on your hands and then there's zombie land. So, you know, that movie's just funny. Yay, I love that. <laughs> that movie's just funny. So, you know, we think about, you know, some of those things we just mentioned, you know, about the, you know, add a dash of narcissism, take away the, the, uh, the self, uh, uh, or the humor rather, and add in the self importance, all that kind of stuff. And then we start looking at social media. Social media has become a huge part of our lives. And it's kind of the monster that lurks in the corner because it, on the one hand, it allows us to stay connected to our friends. It, uh, it helps us to meet new people and have these amazing uh, opportunities for interchanges of, of thoughts and encouragements and, and all these things. And there's really a sense of global connectivity. Um, but on the other hand, it also allows that monster in the corner to grow bullies and trolls and, and to follow their victims wherever you know the, the world is going to take them. But I noticed that you were working on a project called The Guardian Project. And I'm very intrigued by this because I'd like to hear your thoughts on this and why you think it's so important for people to learn the importance of how to stop online, online bullying and how to address it head on. Uh, it's important because uh, people's lives are ruined by it, literally ruined. Um, and there's really nothing they can do about it. Like, I've noticed that I call it relational violence on social media, and it's very different than actual violence. Mm-hmm. In that, when a bully approaches you in the street or um, in the playground, um, there's there's a, there's a modicum of courage that goes into the bully doing what he's doing because he risks the, the threat of uh, retaliatory force against him, and um, that's always a possibility, um, and that that can serve to curb the bully's actions. Even if they start to do it, you can set them straight, and they will leave you alone. The opposite is the uh, there's the opposite effect on social media when you actually fight back. It it uh, it's as if blood has been poured in the water and the sharks come. Sure. Everybody comes out of the woodworks to to mob you. So I think it's important that we take we, we understand that you know this is a real threat. People's lives are really ruined by it, and that the relational violence is a different beast and has to be dealt with differently. Now I say this as a as a victim of these kinds of trolls and as somebody who had the old playground mentality of, Hey, you aren't going to lie about me and say crappy things about me and I'm, and not get whacked back. I'm going to whack you back. It I've, I've lived the experience of how little that impresses them because right. there are no consequences to what they do. So they're not afraid uh, like anybody in a mob who is more inclined to throw that rock at somebody's head because he can melt back into the mob than facing that person face to face and and dealing with them. So we're trying to come up with techniques that uh, enable people who are the victims 
of this kind of relational violence to fight back without causing the kinds of mobs that that wind up happening and to give them some kind of material recourse. We want some legislation out there where people could take individuals to task. Mm -hmm. You know, they can actually pin them and and make them responsible for their behavior. Now, some of the worst offenders are minors. Some of the worst offenders are these kids under 18. They, they, they travel in packs and they are like Lord of the Flies. They have no sense of context. They, they don't understand really the nature of what they're doing to other people. Mm-hmm. And they're actually making their reputations based on negative inputs, based on the, the terrible things that they're doing to people. Um, so we're just trying to figure out ways of dealing with that. One of the ways is we want to do a docu- documentary uh, series, starting out with a documentary on the history of scapegoating and that has evolved into social media bullying and offer solutions and then become a platform where we can integrate various um, um, types of professions, psychological professions, legal professions to help solve this problem and give people some uh, connection to resources that can, um, that can help them if they find themselves, you know, in the middle of a mob onslaught. I think that's great, you know, because we, you know, over here, we call them keyboard warriors. You know, the, the, the people who have, like you said, there's no recourse. You know, it, like you said, on the school playground, there's a there's a possibility that as a bully, you, you might get popped back in the nose, you know, for doing what you did or saying what you said. There's there's always that possibility. But there's there's that air of, of lack of responsibility when it comes to things online that, you know, people can get on because there's the keyboard. There's that sense of an- anonymity because they have a username. That they can just go out there and say what they want to say and, and, you know, really inflict some, you know, some pretty, pretty strong, you know, hurt on somebody just by what they've typed, what they've said, you know, and how they've said it. So, yeah, I think it's really good that there's an opportunity for for people to to learn a maybe what not to do. But B, I love the thought that you said that something about legislation and getting some type of legislation out there where they, these people can be held accountable for what they're doing. I think that's very important and necessary. Here's what I think. I mean, and I've, I've said this before, and I don't know if it's out there in the, in the discourse yet, in the ether. You can tell me if it is or not. Um, I think, um, I don't think that social media itself can be held responsible. I don't think the corporations themselves can be held responsible. They are, uh, you know, after all, mostly op- open platforms. Mm-hmm. But I do think if you're passing on uh, bad information about somebody, if you're, if you're creating a narrative about somebody, to me, you become a content creator. You become a, a journalist in a sense sure. with respect to somebody's uh, reputation. And the, the degree to which you spread that libel um, and do damage to that person's life, you need to be held as accountable as a journalist who's writing for any newspaper who writes falsely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you yeah. know, um, and I think that we need legislation to reflect that. Um, hopefully we can. The, the, of course, the delicate balance is how do we preserve civil liberties and do that? How do we how do we I mean, I've talked about taking away anonymity. I'm a check mark. I think everybody should have, you know, their identity known, you know, and if it's a kid who happens to be online, there should be strict restraints against yeah. them and parental controls. And the parents should be responsible for the stuff their kid is putting online. The fact that they don't know what their kids are saying online is really disgusting to me mm-hmm. um but they do because i see enough of these kids saying terrible things to know their parents aren't paying attention 
Um, so, I mean, there, there needs to be th those restraints, but w while protecting, uh, you know, the civil liberties that we all love and therein lies the rub. So hopefully we can, we can do that. Well, yeah, that's always going to be the challenge, right? You know, mm -hmm. because in order, in order to protect someone, I mean, there, there has to be a limit or a cap on what can be done, but then there also has to be a limit and a cap on what can be said. But how do you do that without taking away somebody's ability to have free speech, but at the same, same time, that free speech not infringing on somebody else's ability to, you know, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Right on. You know, so, yeah, yeah I, I applaud you guys. I think you guys have a, you're doing an awesome project, and I, and I, I wish it all the success. I, you know, we see it often. Uh, Kathy and I are, are both part of a, another podcast uh, that has a very large facebook group attached to it and we see it all the time with you know people coming in just because somebody likes this character in star trek but not this character or this character in star wars and not this character or whatever it might be and these people take each other to task all the time and and you know we're some of the most i think i've seen some of the most heinous remarks made about other people who are considered themselves fans of something just because yeah. somebody didn't agree with them and it just yeah, you know, I, I wrote an article in Rolling Stone under my partner's name uh, for the Guardian Project, and I'm going to write another one, I think, about whether or not um, whether or not celebrities will start shrugging social media off, and uh, because the fandom, I mean, when you think about it, just a, just a few decades ago, you know, celebrities were remote from their fan base right. you know you were handled through you know an organization or their their publicist you know is is put them in magazines or you know wrote art got, got articles written about them but there was no direct contact like there is now through social media and through these conventions but some of the fan base has become so toxic right they attack the celebrities and that that is a well that's going to run dry if you're not if you're not careful. Oh, yeah. um, and do, and do you want it to? I mean, if you want it to right. run dry, keep keep attacking. But if you want access to celebrities and you want them to be open uh, with you and you want to exchange with them on a personal level, stop attacking them. Right. If you want to tell them that you appreciate their work, then tell them that you appreciate their work. Don't tell them all of the things that you think that they did wrong. That's not. Like that's just basic human human nature that you should be nice to people. I always I always yeah. found it interesting where people get attacked on social media for playing a character for the way it was written. You know, they didn't write the character. They didn't. All they did was they got hired to do a job. They mm -hmm. did the job. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think of like uh, Ahmed Best uh, with his role as Jar Jar Binks in, in Star Wars and and the the vitriol that came at him from the fan base. Uh, you know, even Daisy Ridley with, you know, Star Wars. I love Star Wars. I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. Um, Ta-da. But, um, you know, I, you also have to look at that and go, it's a pretty toxic fan base, too, and, and the way that people uh, attack things. So, but yeah, so, it, it, again, it, it's a it's a challenging topic. Yeah, with us, with Supernatural, there's, there's the shippers. I don't know if they have shippers in Star Wars, do they? Yeah. Okay, and, and, and people are just crazy about these unions between people and they um they start their own little carnivorous groups that just attack anybody who doesn't think the same way that they do hey man i think i think that variety is the spice of life 
you know, that you like other characters and you can teach me the virtues of these other characters, man. That's awesome. Absolutely. It takes all of us to make the world go right. Absolutely. One of the things that I love doing about, uh, about our sci-fi podcast that Kathleen and I do together is that, you know, we've had people come on and I, you know, there have been things that I have not been a fan of, but I love being able to change my perspective based on how somebody else sees it. So there's been people come on and say, well, you need to go walk back and watch this movie from this perspective. And I tell you what, it, that can make all the difference in, in how you view something is trying to see it from somebody else's standpoint instead of being stuck in the four walls in which you're allowing yourself to live. It can be pretty eye-opening. I mean, that's what Atticus Finch taught us in To Kill a Mockingbird, walk around in somebody else's shoes for a while. It's a virtue. It's, right. it's good. It's good. But then yeah. they banned To Kill a Mockingbird in schools, and right? we, we don't get to learn that anymore, apparently. The most virtuous, one of the most virtuous characters in American literature, and we don't get to see him. <laughs> right. We don't get uh, to see him teach Scout that racism is a bad thing. Right. No. Whatever. No. I know. So, Mark, my husband has a serious YouTube addiction. So I okay. quietly added the series called Reality Check to his uh -huh. subscriptions mm -hmm. in hopes that he learns something beyond audio video production because I can only watch so many of those videos before <laughs> I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> so what can you tell us about Reality Check and what are your hopes for that project? Wow, that's um, it, it's like a um, they're like little philosophy bites. Mm -hmm. So philosophy is sort of my interest, um, and philosophy intersects with everything in in life, of course. And and so I'll take a controversial topic, it's something I don't think should be controversial, but sort of has become controversial, and I'll I'll do a three minute ditty on what I think it really means. Oh. What there's 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 what we say we're told it means and here's what i think it really means um so that's the reality check and um i hope to make i hope to bridge gaps between people you know i think i think we're uh, we've become intensely tribalistic uh, we've lost the sense of individual of individualism that used to animate us to a degree. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm hoping to bridge the the gaps between these tribes and so and and universalize these concepts again, some of these concepts that I think have been decontextualized and, and are now trapped in sort of these tribe visions of what they are. Does that make sense? It does. I'm, try I'm trying to say it without getting all political because <laughs> some of the some of the ideas are political. A lot of the ideas are political, so I don't want to I don't want to go there and yeah, no, it's good. It. But it is cool. I mean, we watched. I watched a couple of them, and it is that like you sit there for a second with the oh yeah, I can definitely see it from that perspective instead. Like it oh, is. Good. Yeah, it's that, good. That's for good. You. Good. That's it's the idea. You see things from the other side. I think um, so. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm just gonna say I, I'm a big fan of anything that can help make us think, uh, and especially if it's something that helps us think outside the box. So uh, I, that's to me that's a that's a cool aspect of reality check and what you guys are doing with that. So oh, good. Well, it's just me in a in my room with my iPad and a and a cheap mic, as you can probably tell if you listen to it on a big thing. The sound isn't that good, and then I give it to this awesome editor. And she and she and I put edits into like what I think should be in there. And sometimes she does her own thing. But, you know, it, it ends up coming out kind of funny and I think somewhat stimulating. And um, yeah, I think it makes its point. I'm glad you guys got some value out of it. And they're, they're short good. enough to 
to stay within the attention span. Right? Yeah, that's scary too, though, right? I mean, I'm finding myself, I'm finding myself, the more I'm on social media, the more frayed my attention gets. Mm-hmm. Like I'll, I'll sit with a book and I love, I love books. Uh, and I'll, I'll, if I've been on social media for more than an hour in a day, it will be work to sit with a paragraph of a book, real work. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. scary. Cause I think, I think social media, the, you know, the, the downside of it is it's, it's rewiring our brains. You're not wrong. Okay, good. I'm not, not wrong. Not at all. No, we, You're have, not wrong. No. we have all of this information at us, blasted at us constantly. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to switch between social media platforms and get to the next thing and get to the next story. But we don't sit and use our brains and read like at all. I totally see that happening. As And, and in- have you noticed film? When you watch film, it's a cut. Every second almost, there's a cut. So that when you see a film, even like Capote, just a few years ago, that sits in the, in the silences, it sits in long shots and master shots and stays in one place, there's going to be a time when our brains won't be able to cope with that. It's too yeah. still. That's scary. Right. I'm sorry I interrupted you. but No, you're totally uh, fine. You're totally yeah, fine. It's, it's so true, though, that it's, it is rewiring our brains and not for the better. Mm-mm. Yeah. We, we need things that, that you know, pop, move, keep moving. You know, stimulating, big, flashing, popping noises, you know, so. I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, um, should I say this? Yeah, okay, I'll say it. Why not? I mean, I, I, it was disturbing when my stepdaughter couldn't read Madame Bovary. Okay, now, when she was in ninth grade, I think, um, because the prose was just too dense. And she's, she's going to Columbia for psychology. All right. She's a smart kid and mm-hmm. could not manage Madame Bovary. And so, and, and, you know, that's, I, I imagine this shift in the brain is why, why they're taking books like Madame Bovary away and replacing them with, I don't know, Twilight or something, you know, <laughs> Dear that's God. definitely what our children should be reading. Right. But I mean, you know, reading Madame Bovary is a challenge and, and just like reading anything from that era when people spoke sure. and wrote differently it's good for your brain it exercises it you need that stuff absolutely i mean in high school we read great gatsby and anthem and 1984 and lord of the flies not anymore you won't not anymore (laughs) no no that's all of those are on the banned books list now are they now really they might all be the great gatsby i don't know if gatsby is but catcher in the rye uh 84 um, anthem would I could see anthem anthem be. I believe is um to kill I know a mockingbird lord of, the flies is. lord of the flies I believe is uh, scarlet yeah. letter might be as well I believe scarlet what? letter is as well yeah I was actually just looking at a list of that the other day my daughter is a huge book nerd and so we're always talking about books and and you know and so she she's absolutely disgusted that any books are banned um but you know the concept of banned books just bothers me anyway like right and that's why you and her get along (laughs) same here every every idea needs to be out there on the table that's how we that's how we learn and grow you can't ban ideas for crying out loud and if you don't like the book you don't have to read it it's correct correct you walk away from it same concept i'm trying to teach my daughter about food like you don't like that vegetable that's fine don't eat it eat the other things on your plate i don't (laughs) care As long as you mm. eat something, there you right. go. 
And that should be the same thing with books. <clears throat> read something. I don't care what you read. Just read a book. Indeed. But, you know, Mark, we have enjoyed having you so much on the show today. Where can our viewers and our listeners go to find out more about your work and what you've got coming? Um, they can they can find me at Mark R. Pellegrino on Twitter. Um, if they want some you know crazy uh, dialogue, <laughs> I'm in the fray in Twitter. Or if they want something more benign, they can go to uh, Mark Ross Pelle, M A R K R O S S P E L L E on Instagram, and they can see me posting dog and cat pictures and uh, you know posters for what I'm doing uh, you know next. And hopefully there'll be a season two of American Rust. That's that's yeah. Um, what i'm hoping for excellent we will make sure that we link both of those in our description so that our viewers can find you thank you and we also want to remind everybody that subscribing is the single most important thing that you can do to ensure that we get more amazing guests like mark pellegrino here uh to have these great conversations with for you to be able to listen to so please subscribe it's going to help more than you can ever know and be sure to go check out Mark on Twitter and Instagram. You'll be able to follow him and see his cat and dog pictures there. Those are lots of fun. Uh, but also, remember, kids, pop culture is all around you. And sometimes it influences everything we do, our decision-making, where we head, what we're doing, and why. So be sure to come back next week because we'll have your fix waiting for you right here on Pop Culture Addicts. Thanks again, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Have a good day. On behalf of the rest of the hosts of the FSF podcast, we want to thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, please contact us by means of Twitter or Instagram using the handle at FSFpopcast or go to www.fsfpopcast.com and click on the contact me link. Thanks again and hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs>